2,000 years ago in Israel, they would have brought a grain offering to the temple, and that was called the Feast of First Fruits. As they were bringing that grain offering to the temple, Jesus had risen from the tomb. Now before we begin our message this morning, I would like to briefly, if that's even in a pastor's vocabulary, briefly explain why it is not Easter, but the Feast of Firstfruits that we celebrate today. Now in the Bible, there are seven feasts that Jesus, who by the way is Jewish, would have celebrated. Seven feasts. Four of those feasts were fulfilled with his first coming. The last three feasts will be fulfilled at his second coming. But the Feast of first fruits was fulfilled by his resurrection. So I just want to give you, again, a brief summary of why it's first fruits and not Easter. We find the Feast of first fruits, if you're interested, if you want to look it up, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 through 14. Now, I'm not going to read that this morning, but if you would like to turn there and look at it, you can turn there if you would like. But when the stalks of grain were harvested, before they went to the thrashing floor, before anyone got to bake a loaf of bread or eat anything, it had to go to the temple. And so when it went to the temple, at sunrise after the first day, of the Sabbath. Now, sunrise after the first day of the Sabbath is Sabbath begins at, at uh, sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on Saturday. So, the first dawning, the first day, if you would, after that would be what? Sunday morning. So, on Sunday morning, that sheaf of grain was brought to the priest in the temple and he would wave that sheaf. It was called a wave offering. That offering was the first fruits of the harvest. And not only was it in recognition of God's provision, it was also seeking God's blessing for future harvest. Now the women, as this was going on, as this grain offering was being waved in the temple, the women were arriving at the tomb and finding it empty. Jesus had risen from the grave. Now, what is the significance of that? Paul tells us the significance of that. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. Jesus is our first fruit. He rose from the tomb as a promise of God's future harvest. Not of wheat, but of souls. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was God's promise to his followers of our future resurrection. The feast of first fruits, therefore is more closely representative of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than Easter is. Amen? Now please turn with me to Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, if you haven't done so already. And let's read that together. 
While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and again he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." So many of you are wondering right about now, what does this passage of Scripture have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? It has a lot to do with the resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus makes some promises here in this passage of Scripture that could only be fulfilled with his resurrection. You see, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he did not walk out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, the promises that he made to us in Scripture would be empty promises. But because Jesus did exactly what he said he would do, we know that the promises that he made to us will be fulfilled exactly as he said they will. His resurrection from that tomb is our guarantee that those promises will be fulfilled. So when Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified, and rose from the grave three days later, that should not have come as a surprise to his followers. Because long before his arrest, long before his crucifixion, he said to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. That's Matthew chapter 16 Verse 21, and there's other scriptures that back that up, the same verbiage. And Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen to to him in Jerusalem. And so if Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and it happened just as he said that it would, how much more can we trust the promises that he made to us that those promises would be fulfilled exactly as he said they would? Jesus knew when he entered Jerusalem that day, riding on a donkey, and as the people laid palms at his feet and laid clothing beneath the donkey's feet, that in just a few short days that he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. Yet he went into that city anyway. He went into that city in full view of those who had plotted to put him to death. Why? Why? First, because he knew that there was no other way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, and by the way, that means olive press, Jesus was feeling hard-pressed that night. Listen to Matthew's account of that night. He went a little farther, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. If it's possible, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there wasn't. There wasn't any other way. The only way for mankind to be saved from the death grip of sin was by his death and resurrection. Second, Jesus knew that his death was only temporary. He knew that on the third day he would rise from that tomb. And then third, because he knew this, he could confidently make the promises that he made that they would eat this meal together again in heaven. 
he makes a promise to them that that meal that they were having on that night before his crucifixion would not be the last time that they would eat that meal. He promised them that as his blood was shed on the cross that our sins would be forgiven. And the only way that those promises that Jesus made could mean anything at all is if he truly rose from the grave. And he did. He is risen, and that's what we celebrate today. He is risen indeed, amen? But they weren't the only promises that Jesus made to his followers. When the disciples learned that he was going away, they'd become troubled. Jesus, sensing their fear, sensing their anxiety, said to them, Let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. John 14, verses 1 through 3. And so when we look at these two passages of Scripture, Matthew 26 and John 14, we get a much better understanding of why Jesus willingly rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday so many years ago. It was to save mankind from their sin, to be sure, but it was also to fulfill the promises that he made to his followers. Jesus promised, one, that we would be in heaven with him celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. He promised that in heaven there's room for all of his followers and that he was going there to prepare a place for each of us. He promised to come back for us. He promised that our sins would be forgiven, and he promised that we'd be with him in heaven for all of eternity. Those are some wonderful promises, aren't they? Promises that this hurting world, especially now at this time, needs to hear. You know, I have to confess that I broke down the other day, and that's happened a lot recently. And I read an email from my pastor, Pastor Lloyd, who lost his son in a car accident last week. And, of course, that brought up thoughts of my son, as his son Jeremy and my son Nicholas will be buried in the same military cemetery. I thought of Troy, my son's friend from the Marines, whom I just did his, his memorial last year. I thought of Sarah, who once attended this church, and we lost her just a couple years ago. And, I, and, I, and, and it, just, all the, it just all hit me at once, and sure, some of you can identify with that, all the loss, all the pain, all the suffering, so many people have begun this, began this journey with us and are no longer here with us. You know, I was thinking of all those who are suffering from this virus. And our dear, even members of our own church are battling this right now. We're a member, it seems. And, and I think of all who have died from this virus, all who are suffering from it, even including a dear sister in the Lord who died from it in Calvary Chapel Old Bridge, from Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. So I was just overwhelmed thinking of all this, thinking of all the, the, the suffering and the pain and how heart-wrenching and heartbreaking it is, especially for a pastor who's torn between not being able to love on people in the church who are sick and hurting and protecting the rest of the flock. It's just heart-wrenching. It's heartbreaking to not be able to be there for the people that you love and care for the most. And that is the one thing, one of the things that I hate the most about this virus. But I was, in all of that pain and suffering, I was comforted by the words of Jesus who said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. So the reason that we can have peace in the midst of all this pain and suffering, the reason that our hearts should not be troubled, is because that on that Sunday morning over 2,000 years ago, on the Jewish feast of first fruits, Jesus rose from the tomb and overcame all of that. Overcame the world, sin, and death. That's what the main promise of his resurrection gives us. He became the first fruits of the harvest to come. He became the promise of our own resurrection. And because our hope is in him, we can have peace no matter what happens to us in this world. Peace that we will one day spend eternity with him in heaven. We will, Jesus said, have tribulation in this life. We will, Jesus said, experience pain and loss and suffering. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ overcame all of that. The trials, the tribulations that we have in this life are, as Paul so eloquently remarked, but for a moment. They are momentary afflictions, Paul says. They are temporary afflictions compared with an eternity spent with Jesus in heaven. You know, a loss of a loved one in Christ isn't a loss at all. It's only a temporary separation in this life because we will see them again in all, for all eternity. So we don't put our hope in this world or the things of this world that are passing away. We have our hope firmly planted in the forever with Jesus Christ. Amen? And all of that, all of that hope, all of that promise was made possible by his resurrection from that tomb. Because he lives, we will live. And because he lives, there's a promise of our own resurrection. So let's look at the promises that we have in Jesus. The promises that we have because he rose from the grave. First, we have the promise of our own resurrection. Jesus said to his disciples, I will eat and drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Now think about how that's possible. That's a promise of our own resurrection. Because if you think about it, if we're eating and drinking in heaven with Jesus, that means we're no longer on this earth and we have died. We've passed from this earth to heaven. And if we're sitting with Jesus having the marriage supper of the Lamb, that means that we've been resurrected. You know, at the tomb of their brother Lazarus, Martha and Mary were mourning the loss of their brother. And this is what happened when Jesus arrived at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. We find this in John 11, chapters, chapter 11, rather, verses 20 through 27. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. One of the key things to remember in this passage is that 
Martha says to Jesus, if you were here, my brother would not have died. We'll all die one day. We will all pass from this life into the next. Lazarus, their brother, had died. And the point of the story isn't that Lazarus had died. The point, the hope, the the promise is that Lazarus was raised from the dead. That all those who believe in Jesus will rise from the sleep of death to never die again. How amazing is that promise? We have a promise because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from that tomb of our own resurrection. And that would not be possible without his resurrection. Do you believe this? Two, there, was plenty, there is plenty of room in heaven for all of us. And he's gone to prepare a place for us. Jesus went to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, meaning heaven. Have you ever wondered what heaven is like? Well, from the Bible, let me share with you what our Father's house in heaven is like. But first, let me just say that heaven is absolutely God's dwelling place, and we see that in Psalm thirty-three, thirteen. Heaven is where Jesus is today, seated at the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56 clearly tell us that. Heaven is described by Jesus as paradise, Luke 23, 43. And listen, the Bible describes heaven as just that, paradise, a place of unimaginable beauty. Listen to how it's described in the book of Revelation. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. Revelation 21, verses 18 to 21, and as beautiful as all of that sounds, as unimaginably beautiful as that sounds, the real beauty of being in heaven is being there with Jesus Christ for all eternity. The third promise he made is that he would come back for us, so that where he is, we will be also. Now, before I really understood the Bible, I always believed that the second time Jesus came back was to separate the good from the bad and then judge the bad. Pretty simple theology. But after studying the Bible for some years, my view has changed some on that, that, that matter. Depending on your relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus makes three, three appearances. The first is when he walked this earth, when he came to die for the sins of mankind. When Jesus was crucified, died, and was laid to rest in a hand-carved stone tomb from which he rose from on the third day. That was the first coming. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. But listen, he is coming back. The second appearance will be when he calls his church out of this world. When we meet him in the air, in the air we call that the rapture of the church. The third appearance will occur when Jesus returns to this earth and every eye will see him and every knee will bow to him. 
That is the second coming. And we're a little off here because we're missing one, right? I said three. Well, the rapture is when Jesus comes for his church, comes with his saints for his church. Let me back up. The rapture is when Jesus comes for his saints. The second coming is when Jesus comes with his saints. At the rapture, and the reason it's not the second appearance, is because only the church, only the followers of Jesus Christ will meet him in the air. Only they will see him. At the second coming, the entire world will see him. And so when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house, so that where I am, there you will also be, he's talking about the rapture of the church. Now, many believe that the rapture doesn't exist simply because it's not mentioned in the Bible. But I would strongly argue with that. It is mentioned in the Bible. Listen to what Paul the Apostle wrote. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with him forever. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. So I just want to point out a couple things about that passage of Scripture. First of all, there will be a trumpet call. In Israel, a trumpet blast was given to get the people ready for movement. On that day, there will be a trumpet blast getting the church ready for movement to meet our Lord and Savior in the air. Second, Jesus will come down from heaven, but only so far, because the church will meet him in the air, meaning that Jesus is not coming back to the earth for his church. His church is meeting him in the air. Amen? And third, finally, the church will be caught up. In the Greek, that phrase caught up means is harpazo, and it means to just be seized by force, to be snatched away. So in a moment, the church will be here. In the next moment, it will not be here. We will be in the air, meeting our Lord face to face. What a glorious day that'll be. We call that the rapture because in the Latin Vulgate, which is the oldest translation of the Bible in existence, the Greek word harpazo is translated as raphemer. And that's where we get our English word rapture from. So rapture is just a nicer way of saying snatched away. We call it the rapture. So those who are raptured will not see the seven-year tribulation. You'll be saved from that. So if you want to meet Jesus in the air, if you want to be part of that, it is as simple as A, B, C, and we're going to look at that shortly. The fourth, the fourth promise that Jesus made is that we would be with him forever. Eternity. Eternity. That isn't just a long time. That is all time. Let me say that again. Eternity isn't just a long time. It is all time. That's a promise that he made to his followers. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, will live again. John eleven twenty five. 25. What an amazing promise that is. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And for believers in him, eternal life isn't something that we're looking forward to. It's something that we already have. 
Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3, verse 36. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into the judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5, 24. Jesus also said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. John 6, 47. Notice in these verses that Jesus doesn't say you will have eternal life if you believe in me. He says all who believe in me has eternal life. So how can you have eternal life and spend all eternity with Jesus? Jesus said in John's gospel, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to have eternal life, to know that you have eternal life in you, is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ as Savior who was sent by God to save the world from the penalty of sin and death. To know Jesus is not to just know about him or to know of him, it's to have a personal relationship with him. It is to have Jesus in our heart, not just in our head. It is to follow him, to obey him, to be submitted to him, to be committed to him until the day he either calls you home personally or he calls this church out of this earth together. The fifth promise he made is that our sins would be forgiven. Now it may come as a surprise to some that we're sinners. We're all sinners. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's why this is a problem for us. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Jesus was and is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. He was perfect in all of his ways. But I don't know anyone, including myself, who was perfect other than Jesus. And I think we'd all agree that God, who was perfect, holy, and pure, would only allow holiness, perfection, and purity into heaven. To allow sin into heaven would stain heaven, and heaven would no longer be holy, pure, and perfect. So Jesus was the only sinless, perfect man to ever walk this earth. And when he ascended into heaven as our first fruit, he not only guaranteed our future resurrection, he also set the standard of all those who follow him to heaven. Perfection, holiness, and purity. In short, righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's where the problem comes in. If the Bible says we're all sinners, and in fact Psalm 51 verse 5 says we were born into sin, the Bible also tells us that there are none righteous, so how can any sinful human enter heaven, which is perfect, holy, and pure? And the answer is to be covered by the perfect, holy, pure, and sinless blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. That's the answer. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Jesus is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Meaning, the only way that we enter heaven and come to God the Father is by knowing the truth that the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way.
So how does all this work? How are our sins forgiven? On the cross, the Bible tells us, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus took the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, upon himself on the cross. Romans 4.25 tells us that he, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sin. And that he was raised to life to make us right with God. He was raised to life to make us right with God. He became our sin on the cross. So that the wrath of God for that sin would be poured out on Jesus as he hung on that cross. Jesus took our place and paid our debt for our sin. And because Jesus paid the debt for our sin, our sin was washed away that day on the cross. Our sin was paid in full. But that's not all. That's not, that should be more than enough, but that's not all. The Bible tells us that, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the righteousness of Jesus is imputed or given to us who believe in him, and that's what makes us right with God. So we don't enter heaven in our own righteousness. We aren't perfect, holy, or pure on our own. The only way we become that way is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So to make it simple, our sin was imputed to Jesus and was forgiven and forgotten as far as the east is from the west. Or as the song says, is from one outstretched hand to another. And his righteousness, his perfection, was imputed to all who believe in him. He forgave our sin. He paid our debt for sin in full, and he gave us his righteousness in return. So for all who believe in him, God no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son in us. Amen? We were made righteous. We were made right with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So now, because of that, we can enter heaven through him. There's no other way, not around him, but through him. It is the only way. So do you want to know? Do you want to know Jesus like that? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you? It is as simple as A, B, C. A, admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And I know that that word today is offensive to some people, but it doesn't erase the fact that we're all sinners. And it doesn't erase the fact that sin is what keeps us from heaven. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that, has, that lets us enter into heaven. And so admitting is the first step, admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you can't do this on your own, that you need a Savior to cleanse you of that sin is the first and foremost step. Second is B, believe with all your heart that Jesus is Lord, believe that he died for your sins, believe that he rose from the dead and, he, and he's coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, believe that. Romans 10 verses 10 through 11 tells us, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
all those who believe in their heart, and it's not, a, it's not an emotional decision, it's not a decision you make with your head, it's in your heart you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and the only way that you can come to God the Father in heaven is through Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus is the only way, that he is your Savior. And then C, call upon the name of the Lord. Call out to Jesus. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Confess that you need him. Confess that he is your Lord and Savior. And Romans 10.9 tells us, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, there's no magic words to this. There's a... There's no special prayer you can pray. If you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe that God has raised him from the dead, that he is risen, that he is risen indeed, and that he's coming back, he's coming back. If you believe that, if you believe that you're a sinner and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, if you believe that, then you will be saved. Now for those of you that would have an issue or a problem putting this into words, or who would say, I just don't, I, I want to I pray, but I don't know how to pray. That's fine. That's fine. I spent years reciting rote prayers, never really truly knowing how to pray. So if we were to put all of this into a prayer, and believe me, there is no special prayer, but if we were to put these words into a prayer, if that makes it easier for you, then I'm going to ask you while you're listening on Facebook or while you're listening live stream, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you don't know where you would be, tomorrow, or if you don't know where you would be if you left this world today or tomorrow, then I encourage you, I implore you to pray this prayer and believe it in your heart and you will be saved. So wherever you are, if you just want to pray this prayer with me, you will be saved. Dear God, I realize I am a sinner and I can never reach heaven on my own good deeds. Right now, Right now, today, in my home, in the car, wherever I am, right now, not tomorrow, not the next day, but right now, Lord, because none of us know when our day or our time will come. Right now, I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus, as God's Son, His only Son, who rose from the dead to give me eternal life. Please forgive me, Lord, of my sins. Help me to live for you. Fill me, Lord with your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord, for accepting me just as I am and giving me eternal life. Listen, if you've made that decision, if you've decided to submit your life to him, to follow him, you will have eternal life. So start looking up because he's coming back for us soon. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what we die from, and we can die from anything. We're all, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. It doesn't matter what causes us to leave this earth. What matters the most is what our eternal destination is. That's what truly matters. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you have the assurance of when you do leave this earth, you will be with him for all eternity. Because eternity is not just a long time. It is all time. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord, I pray before we partake of communion this morning,
I pray, Lord, that all of those who are with us would just lay anything that they have, any issue that they've had at your feet, Lord, to prepare their hearts to partake of communion with us. I pray for all those out there who may have rededicated their lives to you this morning, Lord, or given their life to you for the very first time. I pray, Lord, for your hand upon them, Lord, that they would just be filled with your joy and your peace and your comfort. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross. And, Lord, thank you for rising from the dead and fulfilling all of those promises that you made to us. Lord, we look forward to the day when we see you again, when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we're going to do right here in a few seconds, and celebrate that with you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, this morning is communion, and we're going to partake together. I'm going to read out of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 26, and we're going to take communion together as the worship team just plays softly in the background. I'd like you to just bow your heads wherever you are and just prepare your hearts for taking communion together. I hope you're with your loved ones this morning. I hope that you're doing this together as a family. What a blessing that is. On the night that he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, before the resurrection, he met one last time with his disciples. And he would have taken a piece of bread, possibly around the size of this bread, this morning, and he would have lifted it up and blessed it. And then he would break it. He would break it off. I'm sure it was probably a little bigger piece of bread, but he'd break it off in pieces, and he, they would pass those pieces around the table. I'm not wearing gloves this morning because no one else is going to eat this bread but me. So he would pass this around to each one seated with him at the table. And in the Middle Eastern culture, as they sat around the table together and they broke this bread and they passed it from one to another, each one breaking off a piece, each one taking the bread and eating it, and the symbolism in that would be that this same bread that is in me is in you. And so as we partake this morning of the bread, it's a remembrance that this same bread, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, that's in me, is in you as a brother and sister in the Lord. We're all together. We're all united as one because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So especially this morning, as we partake this morning together as a body, let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. He died on the cross so that our sins would be washed clean. We'd be cleansed from that sin. We'd be forgiven of that sin as far as the east is from the west. And because of that, God the Father looks not on us, not on a sinful people, but on a people covered by the blood of his Son. He looks not on our sin, but on our righteousness that's been imputed to us by Jesus Christ. And that only was made possible by his death and resurrection. So as we partake this morning... Let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could have all eternity with him in heaven. Let's partake. And that same night, he also took the cup. 
And he would do similar as he did with the bread. He would lift it up high and bless it and ask his father to bless it. And he said, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for many for the remissions of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And I pray that every time you hear that passage of scripture, every time you read that passage of scripture, you have a new perspective on it now. That you realize what a, that it's a promise of Jesus that he will see us all again. That no matter how long he's been gone, no matter how long we've been separated in this life, we will spend all eternity with him forever and ever and ever. You know, as a young kid, I used to lay out in the middle of the backyard. People must have thought I was weird. And uh, look up to heaven and just look at the sky, look at the clouds and, and think about eternity. Think about how long that is, and you can't, we can't wrap our finite brain around how long that is. And I love that description, that eternity is not a long time, it is all time. And so Jesus' death on the cross, but more importantly, his resurrection from the grave assured us of our own resurrection. His shed blood cleansed us, and he went to prepare a place for us, so that where he is, weak will be also. So as we partake this morning... Let's remember his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. His willingly, lovingly going to the cross to die for those sins. And his resurrection from the tomb which sealed and guaranteed all of the promises that he made to us. So let's partake. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. We pray now, Lord, that your hand would be upon us as we continue to celebrate this day with some with family in their own home, Lord, others who have to do this at a distance, we pray, Lord, that even that distance would not separate us, that we would know the unity that we have in you. So go before us now, Lord Jesus. We ask it and pray it in your precious name. Amen. God bless you.